Well, uh, before we get started this morning, uh, let me tell you about something really, really important, a uh, special date uh, in the life of our church. Uh, we are having a night of worship on March the 4th at 6 o'clock, and we're hosting this one at our Somerset location at the Center for Rural Development. And this is not just one of those event, events that I want you to be at. This is one of those events I would say I need you to be at. Uh, if you call the Creek Church your church, we're going to be celebrating the sixth anniversary of our Somerset location, and I've got to talk to our church about something really, really important. Trust me, you want to be there and you'll regret not being there. It's going to be an incredible night. So we're going to load up, make it a group thing, make it a family thing. Somerset, we're on our way uh, to your location, March 4th at six o'clock. So make sure you're there and uh, hopefully all of you will make plans to be there as well. All right. Now this is an important event. So I want you to put it on your iPhone, put it in your iPad, write it on your, you know, your husband's forehead, whatever you need to do uh, to remember it, all right? Now, uh, if uh, you're a guest of ours here in the room, there in Somerset, watching online, today is the sixth in our series called Questions That Christians uh, Don't Want to Answer. And if you haven't been here, we've been talking about the fact that everybody believes something and everybody believes something for a reason. It's just not always a good reason. Some of us believed it because our families told us. Uh, some of us believed what we believed because a professor told us. We read it in book, online article, YouTube, you know, some of us believed it because it was convenient, it was comfortable, and it just goes on and on, the really poor reasons why people believe what they believe. Uh, the best reason for believing what you believe is this right here. Uh, it's, something, <clears throat> it's something that is worth believing, this is a statement we've been saying week, you know, week in and week out, that something is worth believing if it is rational, supported by evidence, and best explains uh, the data. That, that is the best reason to believe what you believe. This means that every single one of us, we have have to be open to following the facts all the way to the truth, even if we don't like the truth, even if the truth is inconvenient, even if the truth is unsettling, even if the truth is uncomfortable, because we believe that Jesus was the embodiment of truth, and we believe that wherever we discover truth, it's actually pointing us in the direction of God. And when you believe what you believe for this reason right here, you leave behind borrowed faith that you borrowed from friends and family, you borrowed it from someone else, and you actually begin to embrace an owned faith. And when you have a faith of your own, you are better situated to have a faith that survives, you know, the difficulties of life and difficult questions. And that's what this series is all about. It's about answering difficult questions because if you engage with people, if you engage with your children, engage with your coworkers, there are going to be questions about faith from your friends, from your kids, and even from yourself. So this is all about learning how to have a conversation about those questions. Now, the question that we're gonna talk about today is a big one. It is what I believe one of the most important things that we have ever talked about, not just in this series, but in all the content over through the years. I think this is one of the most important things that we have talked about thus far here at the Creek Church. Uh, this question is a very pressing question. Uh, the question itself is uncomfortable and it causes us to think uncomfortable thoughts. But if you're a person, whether or not you follow Jesus or not, if you're a person who's decided to read through the scriptures, if you've actually read through the scriptures, I think that the question that we're gonna talk about today is an unavoidable question. It is the elephant in the room. And the question that we're gonna talk about today is responsible for why many people walked away from faith. And it is partially responsible for why many people today choose to stay away from faith. Uh, I, I intersected with this question in a real personal way probably about 10 years ago. 
Um, one of Allison's friends that she went to medical school with had spent the weekend with us. And this is, this is a girl who had been raised in the church, but she was not a Jesus follower. Uh, she didn't embrace faith. Uh, she was a little bit oppositional towards faith. Uh, but she was spending the weekend with us. And I can't remember exactly what we were going to be doing that day. Uh, but I was up early. Allison was getting dressed. And uh, her good friend came downstairs. And I had a pot of coffee. And so she sat there at, at the bar in, in, in our kitchen. And we just started talking. We, we were talking about life talking about school, talking about some exams they had coming up. And, and inevitably, we started talking about faith, and we started talking about the Scripture. And she was asking questions about church and faith, and I was asking questions back to her. And uh, we, we had known each other for a while, so I, I tried to push the envelope as much as I possibly could without it being awkward or undermining the relationship at that point. And, and I remember asking, you know, what is it that keeps you back from faith? Because she was very positive about Jesus and very positive about the New Testament. And so I naturally said, well, what is your aversion to faith? And she looked at me and she goes, I have one question. If you'll answer this question, I will follow Jesus right now. I will sign on the dotted line. And here was the question she asked standing in my kitchen that morning. How do you explain the difference between the God of the Old Testament and the Jesus of the New Testament? How do you describe or how do you explain the difference between the God of the Old Testament and the Jesus of the New Testament? And all of a sudden, that's an uncomfortable question because some of us are thinking, what, what? They're not different, they're the same. What are you talking about? So just stick with me for just a moment because behind this question is this assumption that the God of the Old Testament is violent, nationalistic, angry, war-hungry, who destroys all of his enemies. So you read through the Old Testament and it appears as though that is the God of the Old Testament. And then you get to the New Testament and all of a sudden Jesus is here to point us to a God who says, forgive your enemy, pray for your enemy, bless your enemy, turn the other cheek to your enemy, go the second mile for your enemy. Even when it comes to your enemy, do for others what you would want them to do for you. The golden rule, hey, the greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so we read about the Jesus of the New Testament and we read about the God of the Old Testament and at face value, at face value, there seems to be an appearance of a difference or a contradiction or a competition for what is God like? God seems one way over here, there's a whole lot of violence, a whole lot of people dying, and God is blamed for it. And then over here in the New Testament, we have Jesus, and he's talking about love, and he's talking about doing for others, and he's talking about serving, and he talks about praying for those who persecute you, and he talks about forgiving those who do you wrong. Now, when it comes to this question, some of you are not bothered. Others of you are haunted by it. Some of you are not bothered by this because you've never read the scriptures. <laughs> so maybe that's working for you. I'm not going to tell you not to read them or to, you know, whatever, but I'm telling you, if you read them, get ready. Or if you listen to someone else talk long enough about this, there can be the appearance of what seems to be a difference between the God of the Old Testament and the Jesus of the New Testament. So here's my question to you. What do we do with that? Because people read both Testaments and they come away with thinking there's a really big difference between God and the old and the God of the new. Matter of fact, Mark Twain, Mark Twain said it this way, the two testaments, old and new, are interesting, each in its own way. The old one gives us a picture of these people's deity, that's, that's us Christians, of these people's deity as he was before he got religion. 
The other one gives us a picture of him as he appeared afterward. In other words, it was like God before his conversion in the Old Testament. Then he came to some type of conversion experience. And then we find Jesus. He's much more tame, nicer, sweeter, compassionate. Seems to be much different than the way things were in the Old Testament. And then he goes on to remark this. To trust the God of the Bible is to trust an irascible, vindictive, fierce, and ever fickle and changeful master. That's what some folks come away thinking after they read the scriptures. It's one thing for people to believe such thing and not read the scriptures, but it's quite another for some people to read the scriptures and that's their conclusion. It's a bit uncomfortable. It's a bit uncomfortable to hear someone talk about God that way, especially if you're a Jesus follower, especially if you're a person who treasures the scriptures, who believes the scriptures. It's, it's a bit uncomfortable to listen to someone talk about that. But moms, dads, grandparents, coworkers, folks who have relationships with people that you care about, I need to ask you, when the person you care about and love perhaps comes to you and says, tell me the difference between why the God of the Old Testament is this way and the Jesus of the New Testament is this way. What are you gonna say? How are you gonna respond? I think you should think through it, even if you've never felt the need to think through it before, even if it doesn't bother you, even if, hey, you just believed once upon a time and you haven't looked back and you've not given any of this stuff a second thought. I want you to give it a second thought for the sake of someone who may ask you the question, because few people that I know or have read after have real opposition to Jesus. And many times it's not even to the New Testament, but a lot of folks and a growing number of millennials in generation Zers, they have opposition based on some things that they read in the Old Testament. But here is the disconnect for many of us who are church people. We are so numb to this. We have moved on, we have not looked back. We don't think about this for, you know, for many of us, we think we've resolved it or we just, we just don't read it. We just don't have time to think about it. We're just numb to it. But we need to set under the emotion of what some people think and what they feel when they read the Old Testament. Richard Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion, uh, one of the most known atheists in the world right now, and he made a statement that has become famous, perhaps you've heard it before, but this is what he says about the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. And that was after reading it. It's uncomfortable. It's tough to hear. It's hard not to have an emotional response to that, but let me tell you something else. It is almost impossible, whether you follow Jesus or not, believe the Bible or not, it is almost impossible to read the Old Testament without having an emotional response to it. And this is how some people respond when they read the Old Testament. They started in the Old Testament and it didn't even matter once they got to the New Testament because they read it in such a way, they interpret it in such a way that it served as a roadblock in front of Jesus rather than an on-ramp to follow Jesus. So, for the next few minutes, I wanna talk about some of the lesser talked about, darker parts of the Old Testament. And I'm just gonna go ahead and tell you up front that we're gonna talk about things that God has given credit for by the biblical writers and said to have initiated by the biblical writers. 
And it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be unsettling. It may even be a bit revolting for some of us to hear these things that perhaps we've never heard before. But I think that we should not leave our discipleship to Google. I don't think that we should leave our discipleship to YouTube or to professors or to teachers or to friends. I think the local church is about showing people how to follow Jesus, to love Jesus and to love people. And I think that if we can't talk about some of this stuff at church, I don't know where we should even be talking about it. So it's gonna be uncomfortable and I just need you to stick with me because I promise there is light on the other side of the dark places that we're gonna walk through for just a few moments. We're gonna confront this. We're gonna do our best to work through it. It would be much easier for me to not to talk about this, to pick something else, to try to make you happy, get you to say hallelujah, clap your hands, clappy, clappy, happy, happy, everybody go home. But at the risk of making us all extremely uncomfortable, I wanna give us this piece of advice up front. Embrace the tension. Let's all just say that together. Embrace the tension. Look at the person beside of you and say, embrace the tension. Now pause for a moment and say to yourself, embrace the tension, all right? Because it's gonna be tense. Let me read you a story and I want you to imagine this story taking place. I'm just gonna read it to you and I want you to follow me. And I want you to let your imagination see this play out in your mind. It's a few thousand years ago, a young Canaanite couple is enjoying an afternoon with their newborn infant. Like everybody else in their small town, this couple has heard rumors of a warring nomadic tribe called the Hebrews who worshiped a mighty warrior God named Yahweh. But the people of their town had prayed and made sacrifices to their chief God, Baal. And since Baal had seemingly protected them from other warring tribes and deities in the past, they had hoped that the Hebrews would not attack their town. On this day, however, their prayers and sacrifices proved futile. This couple hears the battle horns and the war cries of an approaching army. They see and hear neighbors screaming and frantically running down the dirt path outside their tiny hut. Their hearts pound as they stare at each other for a brief, bewildered and terrified moment. Suddenly, realizing what is taking place, the teenage mother sweeps up her newborn baby and the husband grabs his sword and they run to the door. They open the door and unfortunately, they are too late. Before they reach the door, two sword-wielding Hebrew soldiers appear before them screaming, praise Yahweh, Yahweh is great. The terrified husband raises his weapon, but the soldiers quickly run their swords through him. Seeing the hopelessness of her situation, the petrified mother curls up in the corner of her hut, crying and shaking as she clutches her wailing infant. As the two Hebrew soldiers approach her, with their bloodied sword, swords raised above their heads. She holds up her baby, begging the soldiers to at least give mercy to her little one. And they show mercy to neither of them. That is a fictitious retelling in a dramatic way of something that we see happening hundreds and hundreds of times in the Old Testament. And it's troubling, it's unsettling. It runs against the current of our New Testament sensibilities. It's hard to make sense of in light of 2,000 years of Jesus's influence in history. 
It would be easy for us not to talk about these things or to skip those stories, but I think we need to think through it. I think we need to be confronted with it. This is what the Old Testament actually says. Let me, let me give you some uncomfortable things the Old Testament actually says, and I'll give you chapter and verse for it just so that we have a backdrop of what we're talking about. 37 times in the Old Testament, God is said to have commanded Israel to, destro- to destroy their enemies and show them no mercy. Now think about that. 37 times, God is credited with saying, go destroy your enemy and show them no mercy. On one particular Old Testament occasion, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai after getting the law from God. He comes down the nation of Israel. They've built a golden calf. They've embraced idolatry. Moses is furious. He pulls the Levites together and says, hey, God says, get your swords and I want you to kill your brothers, your friends, and your neighbors. Later that day, after 3,000 people were slaughtered, Moses congratulates them for doing the work of the Lord, Exodus 32, 27 through 29. On another occasion, God told the Israelites to go to the Midianites and pronounce the vengeance of God upon them, to go slaughter every man and burn their cities to the ground. They killed the men, but they took the women and the children and the herds and the flocks as plunders of war. When Moses found out that they did not slaughter everyone, he rebuked them and told them to kill the mothers and to kill the children, but they could keep the virgins. And he didn't even tell them that he had to marry the virgins. But he did say, if they do not please you, you can cast them aside. Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 14, Numbers 31, 7 through 10, and 17 through 18. It's troubling. God is credited with commands that says, execute children who are stubborn, lazy, drunkard, or gluttonous. Exodus 21, Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 21. God has given the credit for causing parents to cannibalize their children. Leviticus 26, Jeremiah 19, Lamentations 2, and Ezra 5. God has commanded over and over to kill every living, every living thing, everything that has breath, even the animals, save the trees, because the trees are not your enemy. So what do we do with that? Because it's there. And you can fact check me, you can go home, begin your reading through the Old Testament today, and you're going to find troubling, unsettling passages just like that. But see, in Sunday school, we were presented with sanitized versions of these stories. Sanitized versions that we could color. They never put up on the flannel graph all that stuff. They never ask us to color. You need a lot of red, children. Seriously, that that, that part that we just glossed by that. And then we became adults and someone told us it was in there or we read it for ourselves and all of a sudden, we're in a conundrum. All all of a sudden, there's a tension in how I love Jesus and what I think I know about God because of Jesus. And now, to make sense of this, it's not all so clear and clean anymore. So what do we do with that? Because you have to do something with it. So what options do we have? Well, you can ignore the text. Just ignore it. Not, don't think about it. Be afraid there's not a satisfying answer. You can reject the text and say, hey, it's not inspired. It's not infallible. It's not the word of God. You, you, you can do that. You can reject it. Some people do that. Or you can wrestle with the text. And wrestling with God and wrestling with the text of the scriptures are a good thing. God is not intimidated when we try to wrestle with him or wrestle with the truth that we find in scripture. Matter of fact, Jacob wrestled with God all night. 
And God changed his name and pronounced a blessing on him because he wrestled with God. It's okay to wrestle with God. Because if you take the Old Testament seriously, and we do, we take the Old Testament seriously. If you weren't here last week, go back and listen. We take the Old Testament seriously because Jesus took the Old Testament seriously. We believe that the Old Testament is inspired because Jesus believed the Old Testament is inspired. We believe that the Old Testament is infallible because Jesus believed that the Old Testament is infallible. We believe that the Old Testament scriptures are without error in everything that they affirm and that they are infallible because they carry with it the authority of God because they are the words of God. And if that's what you believe about the scripture, you cannot ignore it and you cannot reject it. You are only left with the option of wrestling with it. And this has been something that people, Christians like you and me, theologians have been wrestling with since the very beginning of Christian history. Matter of fact, one of those theologian preachers from the second and third century, a guy by the name of Origen, Greg Boyd writes about his approach to this tension this approach to reading the Old Testament scriptures in light of the New Testament Jesus, and this is what he says about it. He says, Origen taught that when we come upon a biblical passage that seems unworthy of God, that we read it and we're like, this, this, this just does not seem as though this can be true. He says, when we come upon a passage that seems unworthy of God, we must humble ourselves before God, ask the Spirit to help us find a deeper meaning in the passage that is worthy of God. So here's what I've tried to remind you week in and week out. We believe that the scriptures are inspired and infallible, but our interpretations of the inspired and infallible text are not infallible. We have very much fallible interpretations as human beings of an infallible, inerrant, inspired text. And when you have a fallible interpretation of an infallible text, things can get really messy, really fast. So we have to wrestle with it. And I think in doing so, it makes our faith stronger. Now, as we think through this, or I try to get us to think through this together, I wanna to say that I am not trying to resolve all of this for you today, but I want to get us to the point where we think through it, we confront it, and we begin to know how to move forward after we leave here. So as we think about this, I want you to understand that when Jesus grew up, Jesus grew up with the Old Testament. When Jesus thought of the Bible, he thought of the Old Testament. And we never find Jesus bothered by what he read about in the Old Testament scriptures concerning God and what he himself knew to be true about God. We never find that conflict existent in what Jesus said or in what Jesus alluded to. So Jesus knew the Old Testament better than anybody. And he didn't seem bothered by that. Why? It makes me ask the question, how do we make sense of these troubling texts then? How do we make sense of it? And I wanna to submit to you that I think it's by fixing our eyes on Jesus. How do we make sense of these troubling texts? Well, we fix our eyes on Jesus because think about it. The only reason that Christians are interested in the Old Testament to begin with is what? Jesus. Almost all of us in this room, most likely, we are not Jewish, we are Gentile, we are non-Jewish folks. Tell me why non-Jewish folks are even interested in a Jewish scripture, because of Jesus. The only reason that Christians are interested in the Old Testament is Jesus. Jesus showed up, he announced that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. 
He came to do away with the old covenant, establish a new covenant that we're no longer morally responsible to the tenets of the old covenant. We've been set free from the law and now there's a new law. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. We have this new power within us, the spirit of God. There's no temple. We are the temple of God. We don't offer sacrifices. Jesus was the final sacrifice. He started this brand new, better thing. And why is it? That if all of that's true, that the old has been done away with and set aside for something new and better, why do we care about the Old Testament? Because of what Jesus taught about the Old Testament. Jesus taught that the Old Testament was actually all about him. Jesus, he helps everyone reinterpret what the Old Testament scriptures were all about to begin with. And Jesus regarded and Jesus taught publicly that the Old Testament, the ultimate interpretation of the Old Testament texts were actually all about him, that it all pointed to him, that it had pointed to him all along. Matter of fact, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees one day and he looks at them in John five and he says this, you study the scriptures diligently, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And he's talking about the Old Testament law and prophets. He says, these are the very scriptures that testify about who? Me. Jesus said, let me tell you what the Old Testament is really about because you fellows, you've got it all wrong. They believed the Old Testament was inspired. They believed that the Old Testament was infallible. They loved the Old Testament scriptures, but they had been reading them wrong. And Jesus sets the record straight. He says, the Old Testament isn't about Moses. It isn't about his law. It's actually all about me. Now, this is huge. And we can't understate how big of a deal this was because Jesus brings a brand new set of lenses for how we as New Testament, New Covenant believers are supposed to read the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus said, you've been reading it wrong. You've been interpreting it wrong. You have a fallible interpretation of an infallible text. They had read it, but they had not really got the point. They missed it. And so Jesus goes on and he says, if you believe Moses, you would believe in me because he, Moses, wrote about me. And the Jewish folks, they assumed that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, right? Genesis through Deuteronomy. And Jesus says that Moses wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? In other words, Jesus, this is incredible. I, I wish I had time just to talk about this for, forever, but I'm not going to, so relax. Jesus said, you think you believe Moses, but you don't believe Moses. You don't really believe what Moses was saying because you don't understand what Moses was saying. Moses was pointing to me. Moses was writing about me. You don't accept me. And the reason you don't accept me is you don't accept Moses even when he wrote about me. So Jesus is saying, guys, you have been interpreting and reading the Old Testament entirely wrong for this whole bit. I'm going to give you a brand new set of lenses, a brand new method of interpreting the Old Testament because the Old Testament actually points to me. After the resurrection, Jesus is walking along the road to Emmaus. He's walking with a couple of disciples. And after he has died for sin, after he's been buried, after he's been raised from the dead, he pulls aside those disciples and it says that he opened up the scriptures to the law and the prophets, the writing of Moses and the writing of all the prophets that came after him. And it says that Jesus showed where all of those scriptures were pointing to him. So Jesus, now don't miss this. Jesus viewed the Old Testament as divinely inspired authority. 
He saw the Old Testament as divine, as inspired with authority. An authority that was not alongside of his own authority, but Jesus viewed his own authority as superior to the authority of the Old Testament. And this is big because of what Jesus taught and now everything that we know based on what Jesus said, based on what we read in the New Testament, and based on now how we go back and read and interpret the Old Testament. He viewed the Old Testament as authoritative, but he viewed it as being under his own authority. So how do you know? Because Jesus reinterpreted laws all the time. He took authority over the laws and he reinterpreted the laws. At times he seemed to ignore the law. At times he clarified the law. The law had said that if you were a woman and you were in the midst of your bleeding cycle, you were unclean. And if you touched anyone during that cycle, they were unclean as well. But when a woman who was in the midst of her bleeding cycle came up and touched Jesus, he did not rebuke her for breaking the law. He praised her for her faith because he took authority over the Old Testament. He viewed the Old Testament authority as being under his own. He viewed himself as the ultimate law giver. So he could interpret, reinterpret, clarify, and even raise the standard. He did it all the time. You've heard in days gone by, thou shalt not murder. But I tell you that if you've thought about it in your heart, if you've hated someone in your heart, you're already guilty of it. That was Jesus. He raised the standard. He taught that his authority was the greatest authority of all. And here's what Jesus did, and this is so important. He reserved the right to teach us all how to interpret the Old Testament. And Jesus taught his followers then and now that when we read the Old Testament, we read and interpret the Old Testament for how it points to Jesus. Because Jesus believed Moses and the prophets pointed to Jesus. And this is why this is important because Jesus is always establishing his authority over the Old Testament. He's always doing this. We read about this over and over again. And the reason that this is important because Jesus said when you take the prophets, he believed that the prophets were revealing God, that they were a testimony, that they were a revelation of God. But here's what Jesus taught. He said, when you think about all the prophets, you need to know that there was one prophet greater than all of them. And he said, John the baptizer is greater than all the prophets. That John was the greatest prophet of all. You say, why is this important? Because Jesus would also teach. John 5, you can read about it for yourself. It's, it's absolutely fascinating, groundbreaking what Jesus taught there. He taught that Jesus, Jesus taught that he himself was a superior witness and testimony to that of John the Baptist. So Jesus establishes his authority in the way that he reveals God over John the Baptist, whom he has established over all the prophets. Jesus continually asserts himself as the ultimate authority of interpretation. He establishes a brand new grid through which we establish our interpretations of the Old Testament. John told us that Jesus was the Lamb of God. That was a revelation of what God was like. It's one of the greatest pictures of God in all the, all the Old and both the Old and New Testament. Jesus believed, however, that his own works was a greater testimony and a greater revelation of God than that of what John the baptizer would say. So here, here's the point. Don't miss it. Jesus said, you can't dismiss the law and the prophets. You can't ignore them. You can't reject them. So you need to allow me to help you understand how to interpret them. Because if not, you can have a fallible interpretation of an infallible text. 
Jesus believed that the Old Testament teaches us about God. But the question is, but what do they teach us about God? Christians believe that God has revealed himself in two ways, creation and the scriptures. Creation and the scriptures. But when it comes to the scripture, Jesus said, I reserve the right because all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, Matthew chapter 28. I reserve all authority to help you understand how to properly interpret the Old Testament text. I can help you, Jesus says, better understand what those Old Testament texts are actually saying about God because Jesus himself had come to teach people about God, to reveal God to people. Matter of fact, this is what Jesus said about God. <laughs> Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. This was big. Jesus said, if you wanna know what God's like, if you wanna know how God behaves, if you wanna know how God thinks and how God responds to people, look at me. Jesus did not claim to have the best explanation of God. Jesus claimed to be the best explanation of God. Jesus believed that everything that you and I need to know about God, we can see and we can discover and we can find in him. This, this changes everything. Jesus believed everything that you and I need to know about God, we can find in him. Because he doesn't have the best picture of God to share. He is the best picture of God. And this was blasphemy. This was blasphemy to first century Jewish folks. The leaders are ultimately gonna, they're gonna wanna kill Jesus over this kind of stuff. But Jesus believed that when you saw him, you actually saw what God was like. Now, Paul, who was a Jesus hater before he became a Jesus follower, he was an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus while going to Damascus. Paul, an Old Testament scholar, would have known all of these problematic texts, all these troublesome things. He, he would have known about the tension and when he became a follower of Jesus, he began to look back on the Old Testament as a, as a completely different book. He began to reinterpret the Old Testament in a completely different way now in light of Jesus. And Paul, who was an Orthodox Jew, Paul, who was a scholar, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, this is what he says post-resurrection about Jesus. The son is the image of the invisible God. Jewish people didn't believe in images of God. That was to break the Ten Commandments. God was a spirit. He was immaterial. He was spaceless. He was timeless. And to put an image to God was blasphemy in the mind of Jewish people. And now here is Paul, Jewish above Jewish, says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What you couldn't know about God because he's invisible, you can now know because God has become visible. And the image of the invisible God is Jesus. He is God manifested in the flesh. He is the portrait of God in our midst. And it doesn't seem as though Paul is in conflict with the God of the Old Testament and the Jesus of the New Testament because now he's reinterpreting it all through the lens of Jesus. John, another Jewish gentleman who followed Jesus, he said this about Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only one son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Listen to what John goes on to say. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Again, establishing Jesus's authority over Moses and the law and the prophets. This is huge. 
He speaks hyperbole and says, no one has ever seen God because he wants to make a point. But only the one and only son who is himself God, speaking of Christ, and is in closest relationship with the father, he is the one that made him known. And John says that the revelation that we have of God through Christ is superior to that of Moses and the prophets. That no one has seen God, only Jesus, when he pulled back the veil and said, if you wanna know what God is like behind the curtain, I'm opening the curtain. And when you've seen me, you've seen God. And if you want to know what God's like and how God feels about you, look to me, Jesus said. And the point, the point is unmistakable. That what we know about God in Christ is superior to what we think we know about God through the law and the prophets. Matter of fact, the point is that the Old Testament were mere glimpses. Glimpses of God on a cloudy, foggy day. I think I see what he's like, but it's foggy, it's, it's a little murky. The New Testament says that the Old Testament are mere shadows. And the New Testament declares that Jesus is the reality of those shadows. If you want to get to know what someone is like, you do not study their shadow. You study the substance, you study the reality. And if you study the reality for long enough, Sometimes you can recognize them by their shadows. And this is what the New Testament says over and over again, that the shadows are always inferior to the substance. Jesus is the substance. He is the reality. The Old Testament, its teaching of God, revelation of God, it's a bit murky. It's a bit, it's a bit unclear. I'm trying to see. Inspired, yes. Infallible, yes. Shadows, yes. And then we land the plane here because there's a New Testament book written to Jewish people. It's their Bible, it's their scriptures. They know it better than the Gentiles knew it in the first century. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through him also he made the universe. And then he says this, the son, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by the word of his power. Exact representation. Everything that we need to know about God, we see in Jesus. And the point, the law and the prophets present to us cloudy shadows of the reality of God and what he's like. Jesus steps onto the pages of history with the clarity of the sunlight, with no clouds in the sky, he pulls back the curtain and says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The person is always superior to their shadow. Jesus said, every shadow was pointing to me. So if you wanna know what the shadow is like, look at me first, then go back and look at the shadow. What does this mean? Whatever we think is true of God must also be true of Jesus. Whatever you think is true of God must also be true of Jesus because if it isn't, you need to adjust. If it isn't, you need to correct. If it isn't, then you have the wrong interpretation of what you've read. God is Christ-like. Listen to this. God is Christ-like and in God 
There is no un-Christ-likeness at all. Jesus pulled the curtain back and said, when you've seen me, you've seen God. So look at me to correct your assumptions about God, your belief about God, your interpretations about God, and listen to this, your images that are in your mind about God, because in, oh, don't just listen to this, don't miss this. The greatest thing that we are called to do is to love God. The intensity of our love for God in our hearts will never outpace the image of God we carry around in our heads. If you have the wrong image of God in your head, it will perhaps stifle the love of God that you're supposed to have in your heart. So what are we supposed to do then with all these Old Testament depictions of God? And the only way to truly interpret the inspired, infallible texts of the Old Testament is in light of Jesus. We take what we know about God because of Jesus and we interpret the text in light of Jesus. Jesus said God is like a father. He loves all regardless of who they are and what they have done. Jesus pulled back the curtain and said that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes would not perish but have everlasting lives. He sent his son to rescue a rebel race. A rebel race, the New Testament refers to as God's enemies. God sent his son to die for his enemies. And Jesus on the cross reveals a God who feels deeply for humanity. We've said it before, Jesus loves me. God loves me, this I know, for the cross tells me so. Jesus isn't like God, he is God. And God has revealed himself to us. On the cross, we see a God who loves his enemies and says, forgive them, they know not what they do. On the cross, we see a God who stoops low and bears the guilt of his people, though he was innocent. Listen, on the cross, Jesus appears guilty, though he isn't. There's something else going on. He reduces the distance between God and man. He assumes the blame, though he is blameless. He takes responsibility, though he is not responsible. He is perfect, he is blameless. Here on the cross, he allows sin to come to its full devastation. And on the cross, Jesus does what he has always done. He identifies with the guilty, though he is innocent. And perhaps maybe that's what is happening in the Old Testament text. Is it possible that God appears guilty, though he isn't? Is it possible that he takes responsibility, though he's not responsible? Is it as though he allowed it, he did not incite it? Is it that he reduces the space between God and man and he does what he always does? He stands with the guilty. He assumes their guilt. He assumes their blame. He assumes their shame. That's what I know about God from Jesus. The cross and Jesus reveal a God who will allow sin to go to its full effect but it also shows a God who loves you no matter what, and no matter who you are. That's what I know about God because of Jesus, and that should change the way I read 
the Old Testament text, that perhaps God takes blame, though blameless, that he's given the responsibility, though it's not he who is responsible, that he allowed sin to take its full effect. He did not inside it. We fix our eyes on Jesus. And if your ideas of God or interpretations, the Old Testament text conflicts with Jesus, you need to adjust your ideas about God and or your interpretations of the text in light of the one who said, it's all about me. Father, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. If anyone here in this room, Somerset, watching online, if you've ever not followed in the direction of Jesus because of what you believe the Old Testament said about God and you just couldn't allow yourself to do it, I hope that you fix your eyes on Jesus and you hear his words when he says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That everything you need to know about God, you find to be true in me. And if it's not true of me, it is not true of God. And maybe today you would decide to take a step in the direction of Jesus because he is greater than you ever imagined. He's more wonderful than you ever thought he was. And he reveals how much God loves you. You would say, Heavenly Father, Today, I take a step to Jesus. I realize that it's all about him. And if it's not true of Jesus, then God, Heavenly Father, it's not true of you. I pray for a new image of God that I've been, I wanna get rid of and let go of what I've been carrying around. And, and today I want the first thing that I think about when I think about God is to be what I've heard and seen and experienced in Jesus. In Christ's name.